Hello, friends. My guest today is a brilliant young man on his way to getting a PhD in environmental science. He's also a musician and an artist and a really hilarious dude. I had only met him once or twice before this episode, uh, but I had a great time talking with him, and I hope to get him back for another in the near future. Here he is, my friend, Skylar Reese. Yeah, so uh, let's let's get on the time that you spent at Oxbow, because I forgot about that. But how, how long were you? Were you a ranger? No, I wasn't a ranger. So it's kind of, I guess, to, to talk about Oxbow. So after high school, I tried college a couple times and didn't work out. And then I did band stuff and took that pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. But that started kind of, I guess, fizzling. And then my dad got sick, so I moved back home. And I was like, I have to get a job. So I got a job at this pizza place, uh, Wall Street Pizza in Sandy. And the pizza delivery guy, we were kind of talking about like shitty jobs we'd had. And I was saying the shittiest job I ever had was being a newspaper delivery boy. That was like right before I moved out of Portland. I was like, this fucking sucks. You got to wake up at like 2 Mm a.m. And then you work for a couple hours and you don't get very much money. Well, And you have to go door to door to collect, right? Uh, I didn't have to do that, but... I was not very good at throwing the newspaper. And I thought that'd be like that video game. You, know, like you ride your bike, ride my car, and throw the newspaper up there. And then the, after the first day, the boss was like, hey, did you uh, some of these not get on their porch? I was like, oh, yeah, I threw them. I probably missed. He's like, well, you got to go back and put it on their porch. And I was like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I, I'm down to chuck shit at people's door at 2 a.m., but if I have to go back— yeah. Make sure it's a strike. I don't want to do it. Well, yeah, because how much how much would you make a week? I don't even know. I quit after the first day. <laughs> <laughs> you did one day? Yeah, one nice. day. And uh, I've had some jobs like that. So this other guy, Nick, was telling me his worst job. He's like, I worked at this place, Hawksboe Park. You had to, like, be nice to the people there. You had to learn about all the plants and animals in case people had questions. They even made you hike every trail so you could know in case you had to, like, rescue someone who's lost. And then most of the time, you're just hanging out on the beach by the river there picking up garbage. It's like, man, that sounds sweet. So <laughs> I quit the pizza place and started working at Oxbow. And I loved it. I worked there. I think I only worked there two, maybe two or three. Yeah, two summers because after my first summer there, I was like, this is cool. And you're just like this seasonal employee. And it was like my friend Nick said, like you hike around and you, you know, pick up garbage, micro litter. And um, then I asked the rangers, like, how did you get your job? And they're like, well, we went to Mount Hood Community College for their tech program. So I was like, I'll go do that. I'll give school, you know, try number four at school. And I really liked it. And then worked another summer at Oxbow with a – and got like a bunch of friends from that program hired there too, and it was, sure. it was pretty sweet. What What was it like day to day working there? What did you have specific tasks you were supposed to accomplish? Yeah, there was um the two shifts. There's either day shift or night shift. Day shift, I think you had to be there at seven a.m., but it's pretty close to my parents' house. Day shift, you also worked with the lead ranger Bill, who was nice but like very neurotic mm-hmm. and um, took things weirdly personal and kind of like got into your personal life and was, like, interested in you in a way that was just kind of, like, annoying. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like Bill a lot, but also, like, I don't want to make this, like, 
small talk and then he'd be kind of judgmental and yeah. then kind of we so I worked morning shift the first year and didn't get along with Bill very much and then the next year I worked the afternoon shift and liked him. Mm-hmm. And then one of the main jobs is is working the gate. So you let people in, you know, and you tell them it's five dollars and you say the speed limit's 15 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. And, then, and every other person says, oh, 50 miles per hour? <laughs> like a like, joke? Yeah. yeah. It's just like, fuck. This is not, you know, like, it's weird because I make those jokes to people. And I think I'm so clever. Yeah. And then when I, you're on the other end of it. Yeah. No, every time I, I go to get my hair cut, I think about that. I'm like, am I saying the exact same thing the last 20 people said to this person? Make me look like a douche? <laughs> no, just like... How many haircuts did you give today? You know, like. Yeah. Yeah. You don't look like a douche. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but so maybe a third of the time you're in that booth and that was boring. But the good thing is there's always lazy people you work with and they wanted to do the booth. Yeah. Because it's just like you just sit there. Yeah. And then you do bathroom cleanup. <laughs> and what I. Speaking of doing something and then being on the receiving end, I'll tell you this story. Um, There's a lot of people that for some reason shit in the showers at campgrounds. Like every weekend at least somebody takes a shit in the shower and they call it – we had a code because we didn't want to go over the radio. (laughs) Like somebody shit in – Brown team go. It was a camp brownies. Camp brownies. Camp brownies in the shower. <laughs> but I never, I never got it. But because they, it'd be like they were there, and it didn't seem like a prank. It seemed like they just shit in the shower. Like maybe they were taking a shower and they couldn't make it in time. They're just like, well, I'm already here. Or, or, or like, or I imagine like they're like, I always wanted to shit in the shower, but I didn't want to <laughs> clean up my own shower. Yeah. Good thing I'm at, at Oxbow. Somebody else will take care of it. Yeah, because and there was always like a cigarette by it, and it's just like you're. <laughs> It's like shower beer, but yeah. shit in a smoke. But um, well, maybe it was Bill. He was just trying to get back <laughs> at you. No, I I did need to get back. I needed revenge on myself, and I'll tell you this story, and then I'll decide if it's. I think it's it's good. Um, when I was like thirteen or fourteen, we went down to Santa Cruz, California, to camp with my aunt and uncle, my cousins, and um, I have a cousin who's like my age. He's my step cousin. We didn't kind of. Kind of didn't like each other. This campground sucked. It was a KOA. So it's like just for RVs. There's like some fields and it's like a big parking lot. And it's probably nice if you live in some big city in California. But being in Oregon, it's like there's better places in my backyard than this. So being like 13 or 14, me and my cousin are like trying to sneak beers, trying to sneak cigarettes, trying to get into mischief to like, I don't know, impress each other. Mm Mm-hmm. So I told him, have you ever heard of this thing, the upper decker? And he's like, what's that? And I'm like, well, you go into somebody's bathroom, take the lid off the toilet, you shit into the the tank. And then when they take a shit, when they flush, a turd flushes in <laughs> to the toilet. And they're like, what? No you know? way. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, let's let's go do this. So we, you know, kind of go to the bathroom around midnight or two, you know, when no one's going to be around. And these are just industrial bathrooms. There's just a toilet with a tube going into it. Mm-hmm. There's no tank. Mm-hmm. We can't shit into it. So I have this idea. Let's go into the shower. And I'm going to unscrew the 
tap where the water comes out. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna shit into that. And when oh somebody God. when somebody turns it on, they're gonna get sprayed with like diarrhea, essentially. And he's like, Yes, let's do it. So we, you know, nobody's there in the bathroom. We go into the shower, it's already a fucking giant shit on the ground. <laughs> and we're like, oh fuck. And it's just so gross. We're just like, I don't wanna do this. Yeah. I don't know. Mission, mission abort. Yeah. Like, yeah. we're gross. That's just even seeing a shit in the shower is Okay. Bad so then you know who's doing it at Oxbow. Some 13-year-old kids. Well. Trying to impress each other. Maybe. But some of them are pretty huge. Like, bigger than I can even take now. So Well, it reminds me of, I can't remember if we talked about this on the episode with Farger and Pondo, but uh, Pondo used to work at Francis Xavier's, which is uh, 181st in San Rafael. Okay. It's, it's kind of like a fancy Denny's. <laughs> he used to work there, and he'd have to go clean the bathrooms. And he said that not frequently, but often, he'd go in the women's bathroom to clean it, and there'd be uh, panties filled <laughs> with shit that had been stuffed in the tampon thing. Yeah. So, like, I don't know, man. I think if you're um, if you're taking care of business at at a family establishment, like, it's probably an emergency, and you can't mm. really. <laughs> You know, you're it's, not just you're not just going there to take care of business. Like it, it's a pressing matter. This is uh, reminding me of another prank I sort of did. I don't know if this is a prank, but in uh, sixth grade, I realized it was cool to wear boxers and not briefs. Did mm -hmm. you have a transition like that? Oh yeah. And I knew I wanted to wear boxers, but I didn't like the way they felt. Mm -hmm. So I would, but I wanted people to think I was cool. Mm -hmm. So I'd wear briefs with boxers over them. Yeah. And one time, I fucking shit my pants. <laughs> and uh, I go to the bathroom, and I just take my underwear off with, you know, the shit in it, the chart material. And I throw it into the toilet, and I try to flush it, and it doesn't flush. No. But I have my boxers on still. So then I go back into the classroom, and I get my friends. I'm like, come check this out. <laughs> come check this out. Look what some kid did. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, look, somebody shit their pants and tried to flush it, and it wasn't me because I'm wearing underwear. Oh, so, man. That's uh, brilliant. Yeah. And then from then on, like I had to go through the day with just boxers and I could wear them from then on. That was the transition. You never wore brief skin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how it works, I guess. Oh, man. That's great. That's great. Uh, so uh, up at Oxbow, you're, you're taking care of all this shenanigans uh, daily. I, I was wondering how often did you have people freak out on you? Like – Ooh, ooh. We had um, probably every weekend there's like a, a freak out. And there was – but there are some really weird characters that come in. Yeah. So for all your, you know, 70 listeners. That <laughs> it's like 20. <laughs> okay. Some people are listening to this, I guess, for a second <laughs> time right now then. Um, Oxbow's right on the edge of Gresham. And we kind of had this saying that when the – Temperature reached 100. That was also the max IQ mm -hmm. for anybody that could come in. And we would get some really strange people that were there, I don't know, like tripping out, got kicked out of their house, meth people. Um, the weirdest – one of the weirdest things I ever saw was two brothers came camping. Each brought their girlfriend. It was the same girl. That's when they figured out <laughs> that their girlfriend was cheating on them with the other <laughs> brother. That's what it took was going going to Oxbow to figure that out, huh? Yeah. And um, so they got in an axe fight. 
So I had to call it in on the radio, and the the police had to come. Jesus. And I mean, we had some violent stuff. There was some guy that got mad at some girls, like a group of young women, because they were playing with his beach ball or something. Like his beach ball had blown down the beach, mm-hmm. and they started playing with it, and he got mad at them. And then they got their boyfriends to come, like, beat the crap out of this guy, and, like, bash his head in Whoa. with a rock, and he got life flighted out of there. Oh, my God. So, um, but, we I mean, we'd mostly get people that were mad because they couldn't bring their pets in. Yeah. And... So what, what what was the criteria for keeping somebody from coming in? Like, could you just say, uh, "You look a little sketchy. You're not you're not coming in today." I don't think I could. Um, the rangers there are, uh, I want to say, ordained ministers, but that's not what it is. It's a uh, deputy sheriffs or whatever. Same so, thing. So, yeah. <laughs> so they can kick people out and they can write tickets and stuff. Yeah. Um, and it would, it's weird. You get some people like teenagers down there with like, Lamborghinis, and that was strange. Or you get people that try to camp in definitely not the designated camping areas. Somebody drove a Lamborghini. A lot. You'd get some. It's interesting. Some of those. Some of the money that's around. That I'm not in my pocket. But. Yeah, dude. There's some bad potholes on the way out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just like. I mean. I don't know. I guess if you're from Vancouver or whatever, it seems like a nice place to drive your Lamborghini. <laughs> and uh, what about? So I imagine in the summertime, it's way busier. Uh-huh. Probably a lot more drunken people out there on the water. Were, did you have to save anybody's life? Were people like drowning all the time? Um, it seems like maybe every year there'd be somebody that would drown. And it was usually earlier in the season. Yeah. So. The thing about that Sandy River, right, is it comes off of a glacier on Mount Hood. So as soon as it gets like 80 or 90 around here, people think, I'm going to go swimming. Yeah. And they jump in, and that's actually when the Sandy River is the coldest because it's like just melted. Yeah. And it's all – since it's glacier melt, it's like full of, I don't know, colloidal minerals. So it's like if you go to the Sandy River in the winter, it's pretty clear. But in the summer, it gets kind of a milky look because hmm. it's all – the glacier goes down the mountain and it crushes all these rocks and they're like floating, suspended in the water. And that's why I think the the river feels really good on your skin. Like it replenishes you maybe, but it makes visibility really low. Hmm. There's also some pretty pretty quick currents, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was quicksand. I don't know if that contributes too much to the drowning, but that was the original name of the river when Lewis and Clark came. They called it the Quicksand River. So Wow, because it just comes right out from underneath you, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's uh, some places if you go downstream from Oxbow where you can find active quicksand. And huh. I used to go with friends, and we'd go, like, get <laughs> in the quicksand. That's hardcore, dude. I thought fun. it was just in Disney cartoons. Mm-hmm. Quicksand is real, huh? Yeah, and it's just like this stuff isn't like – you just fall in it, but you're like walking on it, and I, th- I think it's called a non-Newtonian liquid is the name for it. But like, if you stomp on it, it's solid. But if you stand there and kind of wiggle your feet, uh-huh. you suck down into it. Like I don't know if you've ever played when you were a kid with like cornstarch and water. Yeah, and it, it's like that. Okay, but we never got like too trapped. But it's kind of fun. It's kind of like I don't know if you do any spelunking, cave exploring. 
Uh, I've heard that term, but I don't know what it is. Well, it's just like uh, going in caves. And for me, I'm not like big into it, but it's kind of thrilling if you go to like into it as like and try to cram yourself into the cave. Dude, that's and, not for claustrophobic people at all. Yeah. So you, I think, as you go further, it gets tighter and tighter. Yeah. yeah. And then into where you can't. You have to like back out. I don't know. To, there's something kind of comforting about that to me. For some really? Reason. I don't. And why I like to go into quicksand. Huh. I don't know. Maybe you're just dangerous. Uh, <laughs> yeah, or, or not. Maybe it's the opposite. <laughs> like I need to artificially manufacture some sort of slow, safe danger. Yeah. Maybe. Like I don't like to go fast in a car. I mean, plenty of people do that, mm-hmm. and I hate that. So. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, maybe uh, you're a thrill seeker, but in a slow moving manner. <laughs> the slow thrills. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. I'll take that. So you worked there for two summers? I think so. And then I got a job since I was doing the BLM or I was doing the uh, tech program. They had a interview with uh, uh, the Bureau of Land Management down in Eugene. And I interviewed and I got the job. So then I didn't work at Oxbow anymore, but I had to live down in Eugene for the summer and did that for a few years too, which was fun also. But I mean, working at Oxbow is great. Like anybody that is, you know, early 20s and wants something to do, I think that's like, you know, it's like working at a camp. It's like one of those camp movies kind of. Yeah. It it seems pretty chill. And you get to hang out outside. You get to see people. Mm -hmm. You get to to find people who have their dogs that snuck them in and be like – Give me some of your barbecue or I'll tell on you. <laughs> Was that the trade? That, I, mean, I want some ribs or I'm telling. Yeah. that Stuff like that could happen theoretically. Mm-hmm. You know? I'm like, did, you, did you ever show up and you're like, hey, what's what's going on, guys? It's like a group of like 20-somethings. And they're like, hey, man, why don't you come drink with us? Come hang out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you, you know, like – you're going to pick up garbage anyway. So it's, you know, and you're the face of the park. So you want to be friendly and you want to be affable. And uh-huh. like, it's rude to turn down uh-huh. a beer, I think. Sure. Well, you just take off your shirt and then they can't tell you work there anymore. Yeah. That we would do that. Like after work, <laughs> you, you, we would do that for sure. But the, the weirdest thing I think about that place is how many parents leave just dirty diapers on the side of the river. Yeah. Like I don't. I don't get it. Like, I would, I would think if you became a parent, you'd be more responsible. Mm-hmm. But these people would just every day, you know, you'd find like ten dirty diapers. Yeah, it's like why don't you pick up your kids' diapers? Yeah, like why is that the thing you leave? I guess because yeah. it's stinky. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to pick up a diaper either, but yeah. but I got paid to, and I had a bucket and a litter picker. Yeah, so, but. I don't know. That's gross. Yeah, it, those those early twenties jobs, man. Those are where it's at. Where like what you said, where you quit that job in a day. Mm-hmm. I had a job. I got hired at Bellagio's Pizza, <laughs> and they they hired me basically on the spot. And they're like, "Come in tomorrow. It'll be your first day." Well, the next day was Rockfest, <laughs> and all my friends were like, fuck that, dude. Don't go to your job. Let's go to Rockfest. And I was like, okay, fuck it. <laughs> hey, guys, I'm not coming to work today. I quit. They're like, it's your first day. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's 22. Who cares? Yeah, it's like the the newspaper boy I was. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, if, if it sucks, don't do it. Who was who played that Rockfest? Who was the headliner? 
the headliner. I think it was Slipknot. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots. It was that era. It was like 2001. So I forget. But there, I mean, there were two stages and like probably 30 bands. It was totally worth it. Yeah. You can yeah. get another pizza job. Exactly. I, I probably could have called them the next day and been like, hey, I changed my mind. I want the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're going with a fake mustache. Yeah. yeah. My name's uh, Esteban. Jo- Jody <laughs> Maxwell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would work. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. So, uh, did you did you discover that that was what you enjoyed was being outside and and working in nature? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I got to give Oxbow a lot of credit for where I am now yeah. and what I'm doing. Um, well, my dad uh, he was a research forester, and that's kind of what I'm loosely am now. Uh-huh. Um, and I, part of me wishes he would have been like following the family footsteps. And then I could have saved myself, you know, seven years and not knowing what I wanted to do. But then also I probably would have rebelled against that also. I don't know, man. There's – in my opinion, there's a strong – a strong – God, I can't think of the word – push towards trying to figure out what you are or what you like right out of high school. Mm-hmm. The fact that you are supposed to know what you want to go study in college and drop a hundred grand. No, I don't know anyone that knows what they want to do when they're 18 years old. I know one person. Yeah. I knew this kid that I knew in kindergarten and he wanted to be a chemist. That's it. I want to be a chemist. Always. That's what he told everybody. And now he's a chemist. He's also a weird religious kid. So he he works at a Christian university as a chemistry teacher, runs a lab, and his lab specializes in developing new chemical methods for detecting drugs at airports. Science and religion don't really go together. Yeah, I don't think so. And I, he's also a, like a professional narc creator or whatever. <laughs> what? And he's like anti uh, – anti-COVID on Facebook. It's uh-huh. really weird. Cause I, so when COVID happened, right, I kind of felt alone and trapped. Uh-huh. And so I started reaching out to people that I didn't know. Yeah. And I, or I hadn't talked to in a while that I knew. And I told this guy this story like, hey, you know, you're the only person I've ever known that knew what they wanted to do. And I kind of sometimes use you on like essays when I have to write about like, why should we accept you to this program or whatever? I'll be like, my life has been like a meandering river, and here's why. That's why I want to study rivers or something, you know. And then and I talk about this guy. And then, I don't know, I think he's really, um, he's, I don't know, he's lame. That, that's, that's impressive. From kindergarten, he knew. That's like, that's like a kid growing up and becoming a firefighter. You know, yeah, or an astronaut. Kids want to be a firefighter or astronaut. I know, but and, nobody ever continues to do it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. He, chemistry sucks. I mean, it's interesting, but it's not what I like, and it's it's really boring and sterile, and it's not. You know, he's making, he's helping people bust people for having drugs at an airport, which seems like a really BS job to me. Yeah, yeah. There's there's better things to do, like make meth in a trailer. Yeah, I mean that's I guess maybe that's like the <laughs> antithesis of him. But so he posted this thing on Facebook I thought was really bad cuz he that I think is kind of unethical as a scientist. Mm-hmm. He was talking about 
flattening the curve, right? How we that's what people want to do with COVID. Mm-hmm. Flatten the curve, keep the rate down, make it so the hospitals don't fill up so people don't die when they get sick so much. Sorry, you have to wear a mask. It's really not that inconvenient mm-hmm. compared to dying mm-hmm. because the hospital's full. I mean, think about how shitty that would be. Like, we could save you, but there's no beds, yeah. right? So then he wrote this thing about how if you plot infection rates, if you do a log transformation, which is like if you have the log scale, instead of going like from one to two to three to four, mm-hmm. you have a, a graph and you plot it from one. Then the next tick mark is 10. And then the same distance is 100. Mm-hmm. And then the same distance is 1,000. So yeah. basically it takes something that's exponential and makes it look like a straight line. Yeah. And then he's like, well, if you, if you plot it this way, the curve gets flat. So we kind of did flatten the curve sort of thing. And it's like that is such like bullshit disinformation. And he kind of worded it to where he's like, but really I'm just using this as an opportunity to – Explain to people about log scale. It's like, yeah, no, you're not. You're trying to cater to the people that believe that COVID measures are, I don't know, wrong or whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's the issue with everything that's going on right now is it became political and everybody has some sort of story they're trying to tell. Mm Mm-hmm. It's confirmation bias. It's it's taking information that makes you right and pushing it that direction to try to influence other people. And dude, that's the that's the most disappointing thing about everything that's going on right now. And for the last five years, really, is like I don't think anyone knows who to trust on anything. You hmm. can't. It seems like there's no real source of true information, unbiased. Yeah. Um. It definitely – there are forces at work to either A, create a bunch of biased information or B, make people think that they can't trust anything. There's a, a pretty interesting documentary called um, Merchants of Doubt. Okay. And it's based on originally the – it was the PR firm that, that backed Big Tobacco like in the 60s or something like that. And they realized that they they really couldn't successfully prove that tobacco didn't cause cancer or that tobacco was safe for you. But they realized if they could create enough disinformation Mm -hmm. out there, they could confuse enough people to where the result was the same as if they had proved it. Sure. So if you you muddy the waters enough and then talk loud enough, you can kind of either get your way – and that usually seems to work if you already are the status quo. Mm-hmm. And it's the same PR firm now that like represents um, fossil fuel industries and things like that, sure. promoting climate change denial and stuff. And I mean, I see people all the time, especially older people, where they're like, "Yeah, but you know, on the news." So a big issue they have, like on the news, they'll have somebody talking about climate change, and they'll have a climate change denier, mm-hmm. and that kind of presents the argument that it's like a fifty-fifty argument to try sure. to figure out. But every single expert, not even 95% of the experts, but all of them know that climate change is attributed to – it's human caused. Yes. It, it's inevitable. I mean there will be warming. There will be cooling. Mm-hmm. I mean there's been a number of ice ages over the course of 
the history of the universe. Yeah. But yeah, I, as according to everything I've ever read, you cannot disprove the fact that humans are accelerating it. And to try to deny that is just ridiculous. And But I, I see what you're saying. Like, it'd be like if you had a debate with somebody who believed the earth was round and a flat earther. Uh-huh. It's like, just because that's a theory doesn't mean it has the same, it can't sit on the same ground as trying to prove that the earth is round. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck are we talking about here? Man, those flat earthers. So the, yeah, those flat earthers, it seems like that's part of a bigger, just wider anti-science kind of agenda mm-hmm. that's being pushed right now. But what's interesting to me about climate change denial is um, – so I go to U of O now mm-hmm. and I'm working on – I've been there five years because I'm getting my PhD and it takes a long time. But there's a there's all the student booths that are out there and there's the Young Republicans Club. Mm-hmm. And I like to go there and give them shit for fun because mm-hmm. it's fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean I stopped now. It got scarier. But <laughs> – there's one other guy, like they had a, a very vocal guy. And he, I think he was the president. And he was like their MAGA hat guy. Mm-hmm. And he's like really obnoxious being a troll. And a couple interesting things I got from talking to those young Republicans is the other young Republicans didn't like that guy. Like they're like, we like these other guys. He's a jerk, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But the thing that was interesting about him, I was asking about climate change. And he's like, we know climate change is happening. It's – we just don't care and it's easier for us to say that we don't think it's happening because it makes you guys mad and it it um, kind of moves the argument into uh, an area we can win as opposed to it being about us not caring. Yeah. You know, it's about we get you to try to prove to us that it's real and we know it's real but we can just play dumb and argue. So they're not arguing in good faith but I actually like commend that guy for – Giving me some For being insight. honest. Yeah. Because then it sort of makes a little more sense. Like, Yeah, it's about it's about creating conflict and, and making it my team versus yours. Everybody yeah. wants to be on a team. Yeah, people like teams. That's people like, like teams. It's in human nature, right? Yeah, for sure. Like that's how we, became, how, how we conquered the planet. Yeah. was by being on teams mm-hmm. and beating the, you know, the Neanderthals or whatever. Yeah, and there's a lot of – lot of evidence for pushing someone that was different or someone that upset the tribe, pushing them outside and making them feel that loneliness and that disconnect. Because if you're by yourself, you're going to get eaten by a cheetah. Yeah. You know, you need the warmth and the comfort and the, the security of the group. And so nobody wants to be the outsider. Mm-mm. You want to be included somehow. And that that's what sucks, man. It's like there's so much more nuance and subtlety in all these things that everyone's discussing. But you have to you have to say, I'm on team water. And then everything that mm-hmm. encompasses team water, you are uh, you instantly ascribe to that that theory. Like there you can't Yeah, it's I I think there is kind of a circling of the wagons kind of thing that happens, right? Where I know I've seen a thing where they show it's it's like an infographic gif about the how um lawmakers have worked together across party lines. So you have like this picture and you've got everybody on that's a Republican, everybody that's a Democrat, and it kind of goes through the years. And mm-hmm. then anytime people write a, a law together, it shows a line mm-hmm. between them. And at first it's 
pretty clumped, but there's all sorts of lines going across. And as we've gone through the last 50 years, we've just started coalescing mm -hmm. and people aren't working together at all. Yeah. And there, there's more of a fuck you, at least in, in American Congress, where like, this is what we're doing and fuck the other team. We're, yeah. gonna, we're in power. We're going to make sure we do it our way. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's strange because I know, I mean, that's how if we don't do anything, stuff still gets done, mm -hmm. right? It's just like not beneficial for us because we're regular people. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, over COVID or whatever, mm -hmm. I've read there's like a hundred new billionaires or something for that. It's like, how did these people make so much money off of this crisis? Mm -hmm. And then no, you know, and then they're arguing about giving us, you know, $1,500 or something like that. It's like, <laughs> you, you, like there's people that got, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Yeah. And it's crazy. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm not the biggest like political expert, so. Yeah. Well, you know. I... I don't, I don't know that you have to be. Everybody's got an opinion, and maybe your opinion's not right. The disappointing thing is just when people refuse to to be open-minded about things and, and be willing to change or say, hey, you know what? Like that, that thing that Trump did in June of 2019, that was a cool thing. Huh. You can't there, – there's no – <laughs> the, the, yeah, see though, but the thing is like I don't want to hear it. I don't it's it's strange, right? I'm I'm uh I'm guilty of that as well. Like I get annoyed if if somebody I know that is like pretty aligned with what I think will be like, "Oh, I'm glad uh Trump fought against this Chinese 5G company." Mm -hmm. And I'll be like, "Why are you bringing that? <laughs> There's a 100 You want to talk about him? Get through the 100 bad things he yes. did first. But, yes. That doesn't that doesn't Eliminate the fact that he was a piece of shit and he ruined a million things. Mm -hmm. But you have to give credit where credit is due. And the same thing's going to happen with Biden. The, Biden is going to be responsible for a bunch of awesome stuff. He's going to do a bunch of horrible stuff too. And the right is going to shit on all of it no matter what. Mm. You got to give credit where credit is due. That doesn't mean that you agree with that person and you you support them. But you got – like if if Trump had taken $10 billion of his dollars, his personal money, and like bought cans of food and given them to Africa, mm -hmm. the left still would have been like, ah, oh, he's a fucking monster, you know? Oh, yeah, because then, yeah, I mean, of course, you could you get into some arguments about how that like would undermine Africa's own food production or Exa something exactly. like that. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, I know there's a thing like, you know how we give all our, they print out the Super Bowl shirts for mm -hmm. either winner, and then the team that lost, it gets... All those stuff gets shipped to Africa, and they say that's why they don't have, like, any sort of textile company over there. Is that real? Yeah, because they get a lot of free, crappy clothes from us, so there's really no incentive for people to start their own business where they're going to make their own clothes. So if you go to some third-world country, Africa or something, there's a bunch of T-shirts with the loser from this Yeah, world. it'll say, like, Bills 2021. <laughs> <laughs> That's my prediction, at least. I don't watch football, so I don't even know. Yeah, I haven't. I don't know. Sports seem kind of boring recently to me. But. It's it's weird. I haven't even. I used to watch NFL games just because, really, because I like talking shit to my friends who actually care. Uh -huh. And I'd always just be a fan of the Patriots. And, yeah, me too. And yeah. I just just a fucking yeah, you know, give it to troll them. Troll move. Yeah, because everybody hates the Patriots. Uh, but 
this year, I've not watched one single game. So I don't even know what the, the stadium looks like. Are they? Is it similar to basketball where there's nobody there? I think there's – no, I don't know. Because I know um, at some college games, they have some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watch that a little bit more since, I don't know, I care about it more, I guess, living in Eugene. But Yeah, they're hardcore about sports in Eugene, right? The whole, it's fun. The whole uh, Ducks versus Beavers – well, I did my master's and my undergrad at OSU, so I'm a beaver and a duck. Oh, man. Everybody wants to kill you. I have to make compromises. You're, you're, you're Judas. I'll be um, ducks basketball, beavers football, ducks baseball. Yeah. That's how, how I would do it. Do you have hats and shirts and sweatshirts and I everything? Got a, I have a green vest. Yeah? But I went to a lot of basketball games the last couple of years, and it was really fun. And uh, something I found out <laughs> is you could get beers there. A beer, and it's like nine bucks for beer. Mm-hmm. Or you can get a soda, refillable, giant soda, six bucks, and then sneak in your own booze. Mm-hmm. And so I found these things called, they're called like a torpedo tube, and they're used for, you put them in a centrifuge to separate DNA from something. And uh, a friend of mine had a bunch of them left over from a lab that they worked in, and each one fill, holds an exact shot. And so, <laughs> so I'd put whiskey in them. Put them in my pocket, and then I'd write, like, urine sample, pig urine sample, 64201 or whatever. So if I ever got caught, I'd be like, oh, I came from the lab. <laughs> These I've left my pig urine samples. Yeah. Here, let me just take care of that real quick <laughs> and then drink oh it. Oh, my God. Yeah, but it was, it's, like, great because you could go get a soda, put a couple of those in there, drink that, and then halftime get a refill and do it again and get, like, I mean, the, the crowds are crazy, and yeah. they're even crazier for the women's basketball team. Really? Well, the women's basketball team last year beat the U.S. Nationals team. Huh. There was a good chance last year Ducks, men's, and women's basketball were going to be national champions, and stupid coronavirus took that away from me. Do you know that they – I don't know where they're at, but they canceled the Olympics, and then they didn't cancel them? I heard about that. Yeah. But they'd already they did that last summer too. So, yeah. But man, that's so brutal. Can you imagine being in the prime of your physical life between like fifteen and twenty two? What do you mean? Look at me. <laughs> I know we look great. Yeah, this is prime. It's like I thought you were Arnold with a picture of Maxwell on your shirt. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, got kind of the same same look a little bit. Yeah, a little crazy. Yeah, yeah man. To be in that position right now, I feel really bad for, well, I mean, especially Olympic athletes, but like high school kids who Mm -hmm. were either seniors last year or seniors this year, like they're supposed to be out performing for the greatest high school year of their life physically to get scouts to pick them up and take them Mm. on to to these – I mean, to get scholarships yeah. to, to colleges. And I don't even know how any of that is working out right now. I mean, it's – I see it a lot more with like the undergrads because I have to – my job is I'm called a GE, a graduate employee. So I, I'm like a TA, I guess. So okay. I teach labs or run discussion sections or, or do grading. And there's students where it's like, man, I get uh, – four years of college and I lost one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all online classes. That mm-hmm. sucks. And not everybody can go to <laughs> school for 12 years like I have. Like most people go for four or five and yeah. that's the time of their life. And to get a quarter of that taken away, it seems pretty tough. Yeah. But 
Well, yeah. So explain that you you went to you said you went to OSU and then now you're at U of O. Uh huh. But you're still taking classes, or you're just I'm, teaching. I'm done with classes. So <clears throat> so I did yeah Mount Hood. I did a tech program there, natural resource technologies and forestry. And that kind of sets you up to be like a ranger or like a BLM technician layout crew kind of guy. And what does that mean? That means like you go out, the forester has a prescription. They're going to log this area and they need people to mark out the boundaries of it and mark out what trees are too big to get cut down. And Is that when they to, put the, the tape around the tree to let you know they're going to chop it? Yeah, stuff yeah. like that. So you get like a map and you go kind of make it happen. Mm-hmm. You like uh, – Fulfill what's on the map. Put it mostly. It's putting out the boundaries. What I did, but I really liked that schooling so much. I was like, I'm going to go to OSU for undergrad. I'm going to keep going. So I did a program called Bioresource Research. Is what it was in my specialty was sustainable ecosystems. And that program you have to do a like a undergrad project. So you go around and you ask these different teachers, Hey, can I do a project for you? And I found this guy. Uh, Boone Kaufman, he was my advisor, and Dr. Lisa Ellsworth. And she's like, I have a, a program down at Heart Mountain National Antelope Refuge, and we're going to be looking at post-fire stuff. And here's a little side project you can do. And I noticed on the map, it's right by these uh, this sunstone mine. I don't know if you know about Oregon sunstones, but it's mm-hmm. the Oregon State gemstone, and it's the second, like, shiniest gem next to a diamond. They're really cool. Hmm. And I was like, can we stop at this gemstone mine on the way. And they're like, yeah, if you do our project, we'll let you stop at the gemstone mine. So I did that project. I loved it. Stayed on with them to do my master's at OSU, doing kind of, uh, I was measuring post-fire fuel recovery. So in the sagebrush, used to burn really often. It varies depending on the the species. But in the, like when Euro-American settlers came in the West, we put out every fire. So now, like, the plants that grow there, the fuels build up, and now when there's a fire, it doesn't happen in the same way as it used to. So I measured after a fire how it grows back, what happens if it burns again, kind of things like that, and then we modeled a... Well, can you explain that a little bit? Because it's always it's always explained that fires are really, really horrible, but it's mm-hmm. actually good for the environment, right? Because it... it Regrows. Yeah. Everything around here, um, I don't know if you'd say evolved or developed to be in a system with fire. Uh-huh. Like, um, And we're learning more and more about it every – almost every day, really. Like the, those fires that happened in the gorge a couple of years ago, everybody's like, oh, no, it's this beautiful area that burned down. It grows back. Yeah. The A big problem can be if you go too long without a fire. Yeah. After it burns – Either there's so much fuel that the fire is a lot hotter. It's outside of what's called the natural, um, the historic range of variation. So, you know, it makes sense, right? You have a more fuel in your bonfire. It's going to be hotter and bigger. Um, and what can happen is if you have enough plants that grow and they, they'll like suppress the understory plants. Okay. So there's no seeds. And those were the plants maybe that come back after fire, but they're all gone. So it burns and it creates kind of this vacuum, and then that's when invasive species can come in. So okay. like around here, the west side, the they say there was a, a big fire, like a stand-replacing fire every like 100 to 300 years, and it would burn the whole forest down. 
and then it would grow back. And yeah. you'd get dug fur at first, and the dug furs, they can drop their limbs. So when a fire comes through, it can't reach the top of the tree, and it would just burn the understory. Hmm. And they have the thick bark. It protects them. The tree knows that everything's on fire, and it lowers its branches. Oh, uh, no. Um, the tree itself, just how it grows, the lower branches fall off. Oh, gotcha. So, so say oh, we play like wisest wizard. It's like say the fire can grow, go this high, uh-huh. and it burns. If a tree has limbs on it, it can catch those, and they're called ladder fuels, and they yeah. create a, a crown okay. fire. Okay. But Doug Furs, just they drop their limbs, and they're protected from fire. But there's a, a tree called the Western Hemlock that can grow in the shade. And after – Doug Furs can't grow in the shade. So they grow up. They shade everything out. More Doug Furs can't grow because they need open light, really. Okay. But the Hemlock comes in, and it doesn't drop its limbs. So when it comes in and kind of – catches up to the dug fir, then when that catches on fire, the whole forest will burn down. It burns and all the hemlock but leaves the dug fir It alone. burns the dug fir too because it creates the ladder fuel Okay, because like the the hemlock have the ladder, okay. I guess. Gotcha. But dug fir seedlings like the open light and they like bare mineral soil. Western hemlock seedlings don't. So then dug fir comes in, it grows up, suppresses its own seedlings, hemlock come in, they grow up, create the ladder fuels. Huh. And fire burns it all down. Huh. And that's kind of the natural cycle that they think happened. But that's also oversimplification. Not for my stupid brain. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think what they're finding out is that like Native Americans actually set a lot more fires and it's more complex than that. And there probably wasn't like – They purposely set fires because they knew it was important to wipe everything out and let it regrow. And um, also like – you have an open meadow after a fire. That's where your game likes to hang out. Sure. It's easier to get around. Um, but a lot of like the Willamette Valley, if you had – in the Willamette Valley, if you have fires, then you have a like an oak savanna. Mm-hmm. And acorns are like delicious to deer. So you have a lot more deer and you have a lot better hunting areas hmm. and stuff. Hmm. But – oh, yeah. So then because of that, they say, well, this forest burns down completely – we can – that's how they justify like clear cutting. Uh-huh. They'll say like this kind of mimics the natural cycle that happens in nature. But they clear cut every 50 years where maybe the fires happened every 100 to 300 years. So it's not exactly the same cycle. So you're saying that clear cutting is is not a great thing to do? It's mm. still detrimental so, to the environment even though you're planting <clears throat> new seedlings? So this gets into a little debate of – what you're supposed to say as a scientist. Mm-hmm. So to say something is like great or not is what's called normative language mm-hmm. where you're giving a value to something. What I will say – and I, some scientists say you can't ever do that. Environmental scientists, which is what I am now, say you have to do that because we know this stuff and we have to advocate against climate change. But what I'm going to say right now is uh, clear cutting as it is right now doesn't mimic the natural cycle as much as – advocates for clear cutting would say it does. Okay. So if they figured out a different way to utilize other other elements or other materials and they didn't need wood as often, they would just leave the forest alone and things would be better? Hmm. What if they built everything out of steel or whatever? Well, steel, I guess the problem with that would be where do you get your power to forge the steel? 
if does it come from renewable resources or using you know a coal power plant? Because mm-hmm. if it comes down to that, it's probably better to harvest the wood. Another thing is like harvested wood, cut a tree down, put it into a building. If you keep that building for a hundred years, that's stored carbon mm-hmm. that you have. And then if you grow the trees back, that's sequestering carbon right there. So I don't think like I mean, there's a lot of evidence to say old growth forests are going to be more resilient to climate change because they just naturally the structure of the forest keeps it cooler. So it's going to be able to resist like super hot temperatures that are going to happen or droughts and things like that. So they're important and they're also important because they're like habitat for some certain species Mm -hmm. that can only live there. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if we're really going to talk about climate change, I don't want to take any cards off the table Mm -hmm. about what has to be done. Mm -hmm. I mean, and there's plenty of people I know who want to automatically remove half the cards. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's other people, a lot of other people who want to remove the other half. Mm -hmm. But I think we got to address it any way we can. It's a complicated topic. Yeah, it's, I think it's probably the most complicated, especially when you get into like human aspects of it. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the most complicated topic on the the whole planet. Okay, so back into uh, climate change, and before we get into that stuff, like what I, I I went to the redwoods last summer for I guess the second time, but like really paid attention. And which ones? We went to. Um, it's just north of McKinleyville. So is that by – is it just in very northern California? I want to say Arcata. Yeah. I think yeah. that's I – I did some field work there. Okay. So there, there's them. there's a uh, a tourist trap off of 101, or uh-huh. I believe it's 101, where it's got like a Babe the Blue Ox. And, oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I took a picture. I was actually dressed up like – what's his name? Paul you know, Bunyan? Paul Bunyan. Just yeah. happenstance. Yeah. And then I bought some Paul Bunyan socks, <laughs> nice. and they gave me a rash, so – Oh, okay. So don't buy socks from that gift shop. I don't. Th- I mean, don't don't do field work in polyester socks. Oh, gotcha. That'd be my advice. Okay. Well, yeah, we went there, and all shit talking aside, it was pretty cool. I mean, they have some nice paths, uh, some decent plaques that explain the trees you're looking at, and then this really cool um, treetop walk around, you know, with a bunch of bridges and stuff to yeah. go in between the trees. And it was fascinating, man, just just being in that environment and seeing those trees, those enormous redwood trees. And I remember reading one of the plaques that said something about basically to the effect of those sequoias, I believe is what they were. I no? this, I, if if you were at the place I think you are, I don't think they're sequoias. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. The sequoias that. I think are inland and there's okay. the coastal redwoods versus the sequoias. Whatever whatever the species was, it basically said that they were fireproof. Not 100%, but that the bark somehow was fire retardant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I may be explaining this wrong. No, you're totally right. But that, that blew my mind because that makes total sense that they would grow to be – a hundred feet in uh, circumference and three hundred feet tall. You know, like there's no way for anything that is a living creature that is suspect to fire damage to get that big unless they could somehow have some sort of magical force field. Yeah, I mean, if you see the the 
those trees, I mean, they're as big as this room, right? They're enormous, And their bark, it's like a giant wet sponge Yeah, that's a meter thick almost. Uh So when I was down there, I was actually helping out a colleague of mine for her master's work, and she was trying to figure out how often those fire came through the redwoods. So it's exactly what you're talking about. And it's tough to study things of, of that size and that kind of time scale. And there's not much of the forest left. I mean, they've cut a lot of it down. Luckily, that those redwood trees, when they're that big, it's hard. To, it's kind of impossible to harvest them mm-hmm. without, like, you know, if they fall down, the wood all shatters. Hmm. So people don't really cut ones that are that size down to turn them into decks or anything like that. So that's kind of what protects them. <laughs> But that'd be so fucked up. I mean, they use I chop mean, one down to make you, make yourself a new deck. Grow them up, grow them for a hundred years, and then cut them down and make an amazing deck out of them. Right? I yeah. mean, redwood is people love it for decks, probably but, because it's rare and you don't see it very often, which I think makes it, it more valuable. Light too, and it's a uh, rot resistant and like uh, insect resistant too. Hmm. But so measuring how we tried to measure the age of the redwoods was you we were doing these soil cores where you take this like piston this hollow piston jam it into the ground and it kind of cuts um like a cylinder into the soil you like twist it and pull it up and you get this core and then you kind of find pieces of charcoal in it and you can kind of date how old the charcoal is Hmm. using radiocarbon dating and then you kind of try to figure out – you do like 20 of those across the stand and you try to see if there's like deposits of carbon at certain depths that have corresponding ages that would make – that you would like hypothesize got there from like a big fire coming through. Hmm. But I think what really complicated it is when a redwood dies just like naturally, when it falls over, it just like – rips up all the soil yeah. and just turns it all. Mm-hmm. So it's, it seemed like there, wa- it, there wasn't very like reliable patterns of just like here was a fire, you know, six inches down, there's a bunch of charcoal everywhere. And we know that that happened 700 years ago. And then another six inches down or whatever, there's another layer with a, a lot of charcoal and the charcoal is this old and then they can get kind of an idea of how often it would burn. Well, so what's what's the – What's the ultimate method to figure out how old it is? Is it just counting the rings? Like if you could just Ooh. chop it down Ooh. and count the rings and then put it back and everything's fine. You're talking dendrochronology? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, That's totally what I'm talking about. Well, that that reminds me of there's a pretty funny Gary Larson cartoon where there's these two guys looking at this giant log. And the, the one guy saying to the other guy, like, here's an – Another instance where this tree miraculously survived a catastrophic fire, right? And so it's kind of funny, like they're talking about how it survived, but they cut it down yeah. to know that. So when, so what I do, kind of my field work for my dissertation was based on dendrochronology, which means uh, dendro is a tree or whatever. Chronology is time. So you're looking at tree rings. Okay. Um, we use an increment core, so you can kind of drill into the tree using this like really small tube with a drill bit, kind of hollow drill bit, core into it. Then you can slip in this little spoon and kind of unwind it. And then you get this like kind of like pencil thin thing that shows every ring. And ideally you get to the center of it and then you can see how old the tree is. And 
what I'm trying to do is figure out how the tree growth relates to the climate at the time so we can get a better understanding of how trees are going to perform in the future under future climate scenarios. Damn. So that's what I do. And so that that burrow, that, uh-huh. that hole that you're drilling doesn't affect the tree. That's what they say. I mean, they say it's Well, you're kinda, the scientist. Well, so <laughs> I guess, um, yeah, I'll say yes. <laughs> um, well, because like only on, on a tree, only the very, like the underneath the bark, there's the, the cambium, and that's just the living area. Okay. All the wood inside the tree is dead. So really, you're only kind of, yeah, it's not alive. It's not necessarily rotten, right? But there's some... The only thing that's alive is the bark? And the, the very inside of the bark, and that's what's kind of growing. So it's kind of like a snake that sheds its skin, but the skin stays on. And in, in, in reverse. In something. reverse. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay, okay. A tree is like a reverse snake. That's, <laughs> that's true. I'm glad we established that. Yeah. That that's insane. I did not tree. know that, man. Yeah. So, so you're really only like piercing its ear, essentially. Okay. okay. Yeah, so any woodpecker that goes to yeah. town on it is it's, fucking it up way worse than you are. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, um, I thought I was going to have to get permits – to do my own tree course on public land. And it's pretty hard to get a hold of who you have to talk to to get a permit. Do you talk to the regional experimental forester? Do you talk to the ranger station there? People in the federal government in resource management are kind of notorious for not necessarily getting back to you right away. Um, Finally, I get a hold of the person I'm looking at all these permits I have to fill out. You know, you have to tell them exactly where you're going to go, what you're going to do. They have to go out and survey it and check out what's up. They have to make sure it's not already a research plot. It, they charge you money to do it. You know, and I'm like, oh, fuck. So I finally, like, call up the lady. I'm like, I want to do all this stuff. You know, do I need a permit? And she's like, no. You're what? It's like you're, you're – you know, it's like the same as if you, you know, accidentally scraped the tree. And also, no one's going to be out there. Yeah. It's not like there's somebody checking you. There's yeah. no, we don't have any sort of budget for that. Mm-hmm. That'll never happen. So, so if you go somewhere and you see some huge old tree and you see a burrow in it, it's probably somebody similar to you in your profession that has taken that core sample out to try to figure out how old it is. Uh, you would never see that the whole. You would never see it. And it would fill up with pitch like within an hour. Oh, wow. So. Okay. Because, so I mean, it's like it's like not even as wide as a pen. Huh. And you drill it in there. And then you pull it out and you've got that – it's just a long piece of sawdust essentially? Oh, it's a solid, solid piece. Uh, if you did it right. I mean, sometimes they fall apart. Sometimes you get a, a burr on the end of your um, bore. And that makes it get all weird and twisted. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you hit a rot pocket and it causes all sorts of problems. But ideally, you get like maybe a foot of tree. I was working at in Western Junipers, which are a fucking pain in the ass to core. Mm-hmm. There's a reason people don't really study them. Like, for instance, there's this thing called the International Tree Ring Data Bank where other people who have done similar studies upload their data for people to do like a meta-analysis or whatever. Ponderosa pine – there's over a thousand studies that are uploaded. Western Juniper, there's like sixteen. <laughs> so like A, it has no commercial value. B, people just want to cut it down. And C, it's really dense and old and hard and rotten in the center. 
Hmm. So it's it's really hard to work with. Nobody cares. But it's been expanding like crazy in its range the last 150 years. Uh-huh. And the kind of the – what makes it kind of anomalous is that the idea is under climate change, most plant species are going to move up in elevation to get to the range that they're used to because it's going to be colder up higher. And they're going to move north in latitude because it's colder. And western juniper is kind of doing the opposite. It's moving down from the top of the mountain into the valleys. Which is good or bad? I mean, then see, now we're getting into that. The answer would be it depends. It depends on what you're, uh, what's good to you and what's bad to you, right? It would be if you're a rancher, it's bad. If you care about sage grouse, it's bad. If you care about shrub uh, ecosystems, it's probably bad. If you care, <laughs> I think it's probably bad. In okay, general. but look at it from the perspective of a regular human. Like what? So the the ultimate goal is to live, right? To not to completely destroy everything so much that we end up. If you go to the equator, it's three hundred degrees. Okay, yeah. that's that's worst case scenario, right? Okay. So we're all just trying to live. So what is the best? Scenario. I guess there's too many things. No, there's- that's a good. You have a good point. Um, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to figure out for my third chapter. Mm-hmm. And what my lab that I'm a part of is called the Spa Lab, Soil, Plant, and Atmosphere. And something we're very interested in right now is what's called natural climate solutions. So there's a lot of people who want to use like technology to save the planet, and they think like we can come up with some sort of thing that sucks pollution out of the air and turns it into diamonds, right? And like, okay, show me how to do that. I don't know. You know, nobody can do that yet. Yeah. The other one is like, okay, that might be part of it, but who makes money off that? Yeah. Right? It's it's kind of like a lot of people are, are skeptical of that sort of approach because it's like paying someone to clean up their own mess mm-hmm. in a sense. So natural climate solutions would be like, what can we do to make – to, how can we manage the planet to maximize its sequestering carbon to the, the best it, its ability? You know, what can we do to make our forests sequester carbon, make our farms sequester carbon? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's things like it turns out if you feed cows some seaweed, they don't fart nearly as much and I've stuff that. like that. Yeah. Um, but so one of the things I'm trying to figure out is how does this ex- expansion of juniper, is it a carbon gain or is it a carbon loss? And then what time frame you look at that matters too. Well, yeah, there's people arguing that if you just plant more trees, who cares how many combustible engine cars we drive, right? Because the, uh, the, yeah, the trees but... essentially eat the carbon, right? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they Like we breathe air uh, and take the oxygen, release carbon dioxide. They do the opposite. Exactly. Um, the problem is, is Every plant, everything burns down, right, what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. So really, if you're talking about long-term carbon storage, you have to talk about storing it in the soil. You have to think about plants releasing carbon into the ground either with their roots or with something else, and then they die, and that stays in the soil because that, that can stay around for thousands and thousands of years. So you're saying that there's carbon in the air that is – 
that is making it difficult on the ozone layer. But you're saying all the carbon that the trees ingest when they die goes into the soil. And that stuff, it that can. carbon stays in the soil? It can. So we're trying to figure out how. So we have fossil fuels, right? We're burning them. CO2, mm-hmm. methane, O2, all these things that go into the air. That's The trees can then pull that out of the air, mm-hmm. turn it into wood or and gra- I mean, a big one is actually grasses, and they put the carbon. There's you, you, there's pictures. You have a grass. It's this tall, but its root system will be like ten feet yeah. tall, going down. And depending on the situation, that carbon, right? Carbon is just like the plant material. Mm-hmm. How we manage it so that the roots can either stay and be like solid carbon that gets sequestered, mm-hmm. or it can rot. And go back into the atmosphere. I'm picturing a tree mm-hmm. in, in a lab, a tree, yeah. uh, one tree, and then a second tree. And then you you pump a ton. You just start up a car yeah. and just let it run uh-huh. for a year. Yeah. Okay. And then in the other one, it's just like chilling, looking at the stars. So which one's Everything's bigger? Great. So what what is the difference between the two? You're saying the root system is going to be bigger on the one that has that's absorbing all the extra carbon? So this is called – yeah, they do this experiment all the time. The So a tree I, – I, I don't know if you actually like did your exact scenario if it would work, but you can put CO2 in there. And it's what's called – you get as a CO2 fertilization effect. So that plant, they do – there's some pretty famous pictures. You know, plant normally, plant with a little bit more, plant with a little bit more CO2, and they just grow crazy more. With CO2. So that's what's weird to people is – The tree will grow more. Way more. But – And that's that, bad. No. So that's <laughs> – this is where it gets a little tricky, right? But that's also in a lab. That's not in nature. Yeah. Um, well, all they got to do is go to New York City and uh-huh. go to like upstate and the tree should be fucking huge compared to like – Omaha, Nebraska, right? Well, yeah. I don't know if you've been to Omaha. There's not a lot of trees there. I mean, <laughs> the corn. But um, there's a lot more, uh, contr- like, a lot more elements to that in the real world. Mm-hmm. So what we're kind of so that's what I'm trying to do with one of my chapters is figure out how CO2 levels they've gone up, you know, from 200 parts per million to 400 parts per million in the last mm-hmm. 50 years or something like that. And the increase I – mean, carbon has changed over the history of time. It's never increased as fast. Temperatures never increase as fast. Mm-hmm. Precipitation variation has never in- increased this rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to figure out what that increase in CO2 level, what that does to tree ring growth and what it does to the response to changes in precipitation and temperature. And that's just one part of the problem. You could <laughs> fix that. You could eliminate the carbon emissions into the atmosphere. Uh-huh. And then you're still going to have exponential growth in the human population. You're going to have to find a way to, to, to generate more food for people to eat. There's going to have to be more land for people to live on. Like it's exponential. It yeah. just grows and grows and grows. And I've gotten into this with other people like – I'm not a proponent proponent of killing people or letting people die mm-hmm. or smushing the human experience. But because we've gotten so good at allowing people to live longer, there's all these people everywhere. And we've gotten better at guaranteeing the uh, the uh, 
infant mortality rate. You know, it used to be 100 years ago, you were lucky if you made it to 10. Mm-hmm. You would, you, you'd get married and you'd have eight kids with one woman and two of them would survive past 10. All these people were not making it. And now we've got all these ways of guaranteeing that humans grow and live and continue. And so it, it's, it's an ex- exponential problem across many environments because you've got so many people that can live to 80 years old and they're eating and they're buying clothes and they're living in apartments and they're driving cars and it just continues to expand. Mm-hmm. So I, that's a very good point. And I have uh, a couple good things to keep in mind with that, that I want to like, if anybody brings up kind of the, the human population is the big problem mm-hmm. kind of thing. Cause I, that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. I see people who are trying to say like that. I mean, that's a that's like a very logical kind of conclusion or observation to have mm-hmm. from somebody that's thinking about stuff like that. And in environmental studies, one big equation that they have it's that impact your a person's individual impact on the environment is equal to population times technology times affluence. So population is only part of it, right? Like there's if – you, if you were to measure our individual carbon impact, you, mm-hmm. you can – there's web pages you can go to where you type in how many miles you go, what sort of – how much meat you eat, how often you fly, how often do you own a train, how big is your house, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it will tell you like how many earths there would need to be to be able to sustain if everybody had your lifestyle. Sure. So there's, there's a lot of people who don't – live like we do. And then there's also a lot of people who probably produce way more carbon than we do. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily too many people. It's how people are living mm-hmm. that's important. But so I guess keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. And then the the other point I wanted to make – now I forgot. It's all right. So It's all right. I'm just considering like – what we're doing is unsustainable. Yeah. As a as a human. As Definitely. a human experience, man. Like Yeah. People don't think about I mean there's <laughs> I mean just even even this, like you and I drinking this out of an aluminum can. This is not good. But we do it. I mean aluminum's recyclable. It is, but there's still there's still a negative effect to it. Yeah. That's they true. had to produce it. They had to can it. We're going to have to drive it somewhere. They're going to have to recycle it. That, you know what I mean? Like it's all stepping stones to a bigger issue. Yeah. Like, I think there's – if you want to get into it though, there's probably like more important bad things you and I could do. Mm-hmm. Probably like meat is probably the worst. We eat a lot less meat. Yes. Okay. So maybe hopefully you know a lot about this. I don't know. We'll find out. The argument – Right now, uh, amongst some circles, is that we eliminate factory farms, which factory farms are fucking horrible. I've seen videos. Like, that is terrible, terrible stuff. But the argument is to replace that entire food chain with, like, Beyond Meat or uh, Impossible Meat or whatever those things are. But 
I don't fully understand how they get the ingredients to make that stuff. I believe it's soybean based. And peas, I think. Okay. So if that replaced all of the cattle that we are currently slaughtering to feed people, we need a ridiculous amount of farmland. Perfect question. Let me clear this up for you right away. Do it. So if if you want a burger, right, you got to feed that cow. Mm -hmm. Pretty much if... I'm going to guesstimate on this from what I've heard. Say to turn most of our like farmland that we have in the Midwest, we grow uh, soybean and grain and stuff like that to feed to cows to sure. turn into meat. So I, th- I think the the equation is for like every hamburger you would have, you'd have to feed that cow 14 Impossible Burgers because okay. it's just not very efficient, mm-hmm. right? So we would need like 14 – times less land to have Impossible Burgers than to have actual burgers. And Impossible Burgers are pretty good. I've definitely had Impossible Burgers that are better than burgers that I've had. Really? Oh, yeah. I've had some pretty bad burgers, and I've cooked some pretty good Impossible Burgers. Huh. And especially if you go to, like, Carl's Jr. or something, they're Impossible Burgers. There's no way to tell. It's not. You'd feel less bad. Carl's Jr. has Impossible Burger? And it's good. It tastes good. I like it. And it feels – I don't feel gross. Like if I eat a Carl's Jr. burger, I like it when I eat it, but I feel pretty gross afterwards. You had a noticeable difference in the way you felt afterwards. Yeah. I didn't feel as bad. I didn't get diarrhea. <laughs> Do you, <laughs> you, you didn't go to the shower at Oxbow. Uh-uh. Um, what if you did an a, What if you did the Pepsi test between the two? Do you think you could tell the difference? Um. Like between a Carl's Jr. Impossible Burger and a Carl's Jr. Sure. Yeah, I think I could tell the difference, and I think I would like the Impossible Burger better. What is different? It's way less greasy. Yeah? Yeah, and it – like to me, a really good burger is only maybe 20 percent of it's the patty, Mm -hmm. right? It's There's lettuce, tomato, onion, bun, sauce. All that stuff matters a lot more than – and cheese than just the patty. So – a burger to me when it's bad, too greasy. Soaks through. I don't know. To me, the worst is like a big fat piece of meat with just like two greasy pieces of bread. Yeah. The best is like perfectly crispy on the outside, tender on the inside, patty, smoky, mm-hmm. grill marks, lettuce, onion, tomato, hot sauce, cheese, like good good bun. I'm getting hungry. Yeah. Me too. We might have to go to Burgerville <laughs> or something after this. But so, so what? What is the argument then? What? What? What are you saying? Impossible Burger versus traditional burger. We, you said it takes fourteen times. I think. I think that's like the last number I heard. I mean, I might, I'm probably wrong. I would say, but I'm, I don't think I'm that wrong. So I think that's the order of magnitude. So, are you saying that it's more efficient to continue? Slaughtering cattle? No, no, the other way. So I think the number I'm talking about, I guess, is like, say you had a acre of land, right? You could either feed 14 people on that land from the vegetables. Or feed one cow. Or feed one cow. Gotcha. And then that cow could feed one person. Sure. So that's what it kind of comes down to. So what, what, what do you think then? I mean, if you could hypothesize or predict the future and you could say, this is what we're going to do, do you think it would be more efficient and better for the environment to 
relegate cattle to you know there a couple people have them in Montana and everyone in Iowa who used to grow grain to feed the cattle is now growing soybeans and peas to make impossible burgers yeah i think um i don't think we have to like outlaw meat completely or yeah. anything like that i think it's got to be way more of a luxury mm-hmm. i don't think people need and i mean I know I've experienced this in my life, but my girlfriend's also a vegan, so mm-hmm. I kind of have to be vegan sometimes. But I still love to eat meat. But I don't eat it for every meal. You know, I don't have to eat a half pound of burger sure. for everything. Mm-hmm. I think that's the the issue over the last 50, 60, 70 years is it became a thing that was in every single meal. You ate it with breakfast. You ate it with lunch. You ate it with dinner. I don't know that that's fully necessary, but you need to get the protein. Mm-hmm. And if – I mean it, it will change the the physical composition of a human being if we don't continue to get the same amount of protein. Yeah. And so I, I don't know what amount of protein is in an Impossible Burger. I, I bet you it's comparable to meat. And the, the weird thing about like when you're talking about factory farms and stuff like that – is there's this kind of myth that the meat we're getting from situations like that are, is good for us. I mean, that, those those cows are like pumped full of antibiotics. They're pumped full of growth hormones. That stuff stays in there and that makes you like more unhealthy, mm-hmm. right? That, that's got to lead to super strains of bacteria. That's mm-hmm. got to lead to the weird hormone issues that people are having. Mm-hmm. So I would say – Eat less meat, but eat way better meat. Eat yeah. like a really good steak once a week and eat some other crappy meat every other day and then try <laughs> to eat some good stuff, you know. Well, well that, that's, the, uh, that's the interesting thing is like I wonder if they could – they will eventually be able to turn that protein supplement into a drink and then you won't need to eat. Yeah, but I like to eat. I do too. It's like my favorite thing. It it is awesome. I love to cook too. You I know? do too. I do too. It's a it's a thing that you have to do every day, and it can fluctuate slightly based on how you do it. So for me, like I never make anything the same way twice. Yeah, me neither. I'm always like refining it just a little bit, and so it's it's an extra activity that you're doing every day. And I agree. Like if you didn't have to eat. I'd be pissed. I'd be like, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's fun. Yeah, and it's fun to cook for people. It's fun to grill meat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the most fun to to take something and and use your grill and cook it for a long time and make it just so delicious. Yeah, but I mean, that's way more fun than cooking pasta. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's a there's a challenge to it. Yeah, right? it's like uh, it's like medieval, you know. Uh huh. Yeah, and it, like. It can go wrong in so many ways. I know. You can burn it. You can uh-huh. undercook it. You can yeah. overcook it. You can – in an instant, right? You're cooking a bunch of chicken thighs. Uh-huh. You look away for a minute and they're all ruined. Yeah. So yeah. Well, fun. and it's one thing to go to um, a nice restaurant and have somebody else cook the fucking best steak of your life for you. But if you go home and you cook a, a $9 steak yourself, mm-hmm. like – you you're, save 50 bucks. You save 50 bucks and you're more impressed because you did it. Oh, I know how to do it too. I got a cast iron. My my place right now has a gas stove. 
Yeah. I can get it really hot. There's a really nice butcher shop in Eugene, Long's, mm-hmm. and they got really good meat. You know, they got it where it's like you can get grass-fed or you can get grass-fed and grain-finished. You mm-hmm. know where it's from and stuff like that. And it's like I did a little taste test for myself, and I think sirloin, top sirloin's the best. Yeah? Yeah, I did sirloin versus New York strip versus ribeye blind and sirloin's the cheapest, and I like it. And I had a butcher friend, and she mm-hmm. was like, sirloin's what we – we know that's the, the key. Mm-hmm. But I do a cast iron, right? So all the fat's retained, so I don't need that fatty of a meat. Yeah. If you're barbecuing it, then maybe you do want something – a little higher fat content. It's pretty cool that there are different ways to cook it to to get what you're going for. Yeah. You know? Definitely. <laughs> Many years ago, there's just like – Put it over the campfire and let's see what happens. But I think the worst I've ever seen. I saw somebody microwave a package full of hamburger meat one time when I was doing field work for my master's Heart Mountain National Antelope Refuge at the uh, bunkhouse there. And this guy was supposed to be cooking for his crew. He has like six pounds of hamburger, still in the styrofoam, still in the saran wrap. Puts it in the microwave. <laughs> Everybody's like, I'm not going to eat this shit. So he goes, fine, I'll eat it. And he eats it like like a pig out of a trough. That's the grossest thing. Did he, did he die? No, he was a big guy. He was <laughs> Levi. He was an interesting dude. He was a, I don't know. I don't, you know, it was interesting because he wasn't in my crew at all. We would come every other week and be there for two weeks. Uh-huh. His crew had to stay there for the whole summer. They were bird people. They 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 watched the Satrus there, and every year I did three years there. Their those bird crews would just go insane over the summer. What does that mean, bird crew? They're they're looking at sage grouse, which is a kind of on the fence, um, maybe endangered, maybe not, depending on how you look at it. Kind of chicken that lives out in the sagebrush, and they would measure them and kind of look at how many survived. They'd go out and tag them, put radio collars on them, see where they moved, uh, go out, count how many chicks there are, stuff like that. And it's crazy too because they'd be like, they'd realize like halfway through, they're they're going out to these nests to look at these sage grouse. They're getting followed by coyotes. The coyotes are going and eating them, and the ones they're trying to measure. They found out too that the, uh, the radio collars they put on them, they have a little solar panel. Uh, sage, sage grouse are cryptids, so they're really, really um, camouflaged. People think they're really stupid because you could step on one. Like, that thing's so dumb. But it's like that's its strategy. Huh. To, it hides. But this collar, everyone they put collars on, it just reflects to, like, uh, hawks. Hawks could figure it out, and they're going and killing them all. And it's huh. just like – I'm exaggerating a little bit. But by observing these birds, they were – Increasing their death rate, hmm. but then they're reporting on how many are surviving and dying. So they're they're directly influencing. Yeah, yeah I mean that's you can't. That's I don't know. There's some scientists at Oppenheimer. Maybe you can't yeah. observe something without influencing it. Well, exactly. Unless you're like putting a camera on it somehow, but even that would influence it. That's too. what the next guy did. The smarter guy. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, let's put some cameras up there. <laughs> I got a GoPro Seven. Yeah, I mean. But man, this is that bird crew is crazy. Speaking of GoPros, the first year I go there, there's this big controversy. One of the crew leads was a master's student. She quit because somebody else had taken their GoPro, put it in her tent, 
to videotape her and her boyfriend having sex <laughs> with like the, the official GoPro for the experiment. Oh shit! So they were gone. That's like the first day I show up. She ago. she quit, but did the person who filmed her get in trouble? Yeah, they got fired. Yeah, okay. So that that those bird people were just nuts, man. They're like they hire these people. They hire them late. They're in the middle of nowhere. They're not like the cream of the crop, I guess. Like if you're a bird person, you're going to go try to go to the rainforest or the Antarctic or some, you know, you're going to study penguins or something crazy. You're not going to study some sort of weird chicken yeah. that can't survive in eastern Oregon. Sounds like a good job for me. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you could do it. You could do it. But And then they got to get up at 3 a.m. every morning mm-hmm. and go out to be able to measure how many chicks there are in these nests mm-hmm. when the sun rises. And my crew just goes out and I just like see how, you know, I clip a bunch of grass and see how much it weighs. Yeah. And, you know, avoid scorpions and it's fun. Mm-hmm. But I get to go back, you know, after 10 days and go back to Corvallis at the time. Yeah. But man, you see some weird people. I got to tell you this story. This was on my list of stories I wanted to tell you. So we're out there. Um, this is when I was doing my master's. I had my own crew, no boss. And Heart Mountain National Antelope Refuge has a really cool hot springs. And it's right by the camp that we stay. So there's nothing better after measuring plants all day than going into the hot springs. Yeah. But I don't know if you've been to hot springs, but mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a grab bag of who you're going to meet out there. Yeah. So I'm there with my crew. And there's a family there. And it's it's kind of a built-up hot spring. So it's got like some – some walls around it and it's deep and you can hang out in it and you're like all buoyant and weird because it's full of minerals and it's just really nice. And his family's there and we're there and we hear some guy like hooting. Woo, doo, 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 doo. And he shows up and there's this guy. He's got like half a bottle of Jim Bean in his hand. Young, like mid-20s kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Jumps into the hot spring, fully clothed, shoes on and everything. <laughs> and he's getting drunk and – and, and I'm with my crew. I'm like, we got to help this guy. He's trying to give us the whiskey to drink. Like, let's help him with this whiskey because I think he's going to die. The family leaves. And this guy's just telling us stories. And he's like pretending to play the saxophone and spitting in everybody's face and falling into the hot springs and then coming back up and getting mad at everybody. We're not saving him. You didn't save my life. Nobody cares about me. He's telling us his name. I don't want to repeat his name, but I remember it because it's the same name as another guy I went to school with. Mm-hmm. is Brian Sparks. Um, <laughs> and he's just – he's saying, I work for the Forest Service and I'm a, a rec tech and I make this amount and I like study this amount of area. And I don't know. He's just going off and he's like – he's on one. Mm-hmm. He's saying, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go to the uh, place and I'm going to mine all these gemstones and blah, 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 blah. And we're like, fuck, this guy's fucked up and it's getting dark and we're like, we want to go. And he's like, OK, see you guys. I'll be fine. And I'm like, we can't leave this guy here. Mm-hmm. He's going to drown. And we can't leave him in here because it gets it gets almost freezing every night in the desert there, even in the summertime. And it's about a mile walk to the campground from mm-hmm. the camp from the hot springs. So we're like, we can't leave him to walk back because he's going to freeze to death. Yeah. We're not supposed to put people into state rigs either. But I bend the rules and I say, let's load this guy up. You know, we know he's in camp. Ground 7A, because he's been screaming about it for the last two hours. We put him in there. We'll take him there. We load him in, take him there. We see his tent, blah, blah, blah. He can't walk at this point. So me and the, the guy, Neil, we get him. 
walk him to his tent. He's like, I'm fine, I'm fine, you can let me out here. Instantly falls out, just falls down onto the grass. Like, okay, we can't do this. We've got to get him into his tent. So we open up his tent, put him in there. He's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. It's like, fuck, this guy's soaking wet. He's going to die. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's his bag of clothes. So let's open it up. Let's take his wet clothes off him. Let's just put something on him and put him in bed. Mm-hmm. Open up the bag. All that's in there, women's panties. <laughs> That's that, it. That at one one like ninety two. When so we take his clothes off, we put this like lingerie on him, <laughs> and we put him in there, and we're like, okay, and he's passed out. Next day, we drive by to see if he's there. Seven a.m. Like he said, he left. He'd gone to go <laughs> mining. Next trip, we're out there. We're uh, at this other place called Lookout Point. We meet some guy, another weirdo too. He's like, you know those guys that wear sweatpants and they pull them up too high so you can see their moose knuckle, mm-hmm. whatever. And he had like socks with sandals and he's really weird and we're talking to him. Turns out he's a rec tech for the uh, Forest Service. Turns out that job just means they go to recreation sites and clean the bathrooms. Okay, I've been there, done that. Um, ask him about this Brian Sparks guy. Do you know him? He's like, yeah, I know him, but he's not a, a rec tech. He's the volunteer youth coordinator. Oh, no. So it's like, whose fucking panties were those? Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> he stole a bunch of fucking... I don't know. Underage girl panties. They, they were. They didn't look like it, though. They looked like a, a big ladies. But and uh, why would that be the only thing in the backpack? Was he just going to wear the same clothes the whole time? I don't know. He just... And his tent, he had a pretty nice big tent. He had an air mattress. He had like... A down comforter and not a sleeping bag, and then a duffel bag full of kind of like lacy women's panties. Hmm. He knows how to party. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) He did. I mean, that guy put it down. He drank a lot of Jim Beam. I think he was in like some sort of relationship trouble, if I remember correctly. So maybe they were his exes. I could believe that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But... So I feel like there's going to have to be a part two, part three. We're, we're coming close to the end. I try to wrap them up around two yes. hours. All right. But um, I guess let's go towards music. Okay. Sweet. What, what do you play? Um, I would say uh, I try to kind of play everything, but I'm pretty bad at, <laughs> I, you know, like I'm not um, – I can play some chords and I got a ukulele. I can play that a little bit better than a guitar. But what, what what did you play when you were in a band? Okay, cool. Um, so I had – when I was like 2005 uh-huh. through 2008, me and my buddy Nick founded this band, Reptilian Civilian, and I was the front man. I think I have a piece of vinyl. Really? I think you gave one to me or to Farger or something. I think I have like a seven inch. That thing's a collector's item now. Dude, it's worth millions. I'm going to hang on to it. Well, let me look. Let me see if it's still there. I'm pretty fucking sure I have one of those sevens. Because is that something you released? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So this, thanks for uh, asking me about that. Because what I wanted to do was I wanted to actually plug this. So like I said before, I'm I'm moving into this place with my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So I'm going through stuff. I find some old recordings that I thought were lost, and I just um, put them actually onto my band camp, mm-hmm. which is just, you know, smash the like button and subscribe and scroll down into the comments and you'll see the 
It's here. It's right here, right now, right? Is that, is that how you do it? It's the, the Skylar Band dot bandcamp.com. And that's where okay. I put my recordings that I make. Okay. But I just uh, decided I'm going to release these reptilian civilian recordings onto that. Okay. And they're a lot better than the stuff that I do myself. Okay. Because they were like, we had somebody else record it. We had somebody else play drums, guitar, and bass. And I was the singer and I wrote the songs. And we had a, a really good show, but I don't know. I, I don't know if it is this way for you, but like I feel like uh, some of the stuff that I did 10, 15, 20 years ago, I go back and I listen to it after a long time, and I'm like, it's actually not that bad. Yeah. You know, like you appreciate it when you did it when you were 20, 22, 24, whatever. You're just like, yeah, fuck yeah, doing it, you know, whatever. And then you get 15 years of life. And experience, <laughs> and you go back, and you're like, I don't know if this is the same for you, but like that is a different person. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, um, but in a good way. You're like, man, I can't believe I made that. Yes, our uh, when I I think about reptilian civilian, which we'll just call them Rep Civ now, because now there's another band called Reptilian Civilian that took our name. Copyright infringement? Yeah, we didn't copyright it. And they're like a weird death metal band, so it's kind of funny, too. Because if, So if you're listening to that and it's like, rah, 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 you're at the wrong band camp. <laughs> um, but I used to think like conspiracy theories and stuff like that were kind of funny and were kind of cool a as a joke. And... A lot of reptilian civilian songs were about that. Like the name itself is based on this idea that there's like reptilian alien shapeshifters on Earth and they're controlling the government. I just thought that stuff was so ridiculous that it would – and so fringe that it would be interesting to kind of sing about some of that stuff or whatever. Now in this world, 2021, that, that's what the people that stormed the Capitol actually believe. <laughs> So you could have been leading a revolution. I could have been the QAnon uh, <laughs> shaman or whatever. Yeah. So I'm. It's a little embarrassing, but also it's like, I guess maybe it's important to think about like what what you say matters. I guess. And when I was 21, 22, I didn't think that. I thought like people care too much, and what people really need is to have a good time and let loose and. I mean, that's still probably true, but it was a different time. It was. Can you imagine? Like, I cannot put myself in the brain that that existed in 2005 compared to now. Man, so much has changed in that 15, 16 years. And the way I look at it now is, I don't care. I don't care anymore. It's like we're only going to get 80 years if we're lucky. Hmm. No one's going to care when we're dead. If you have kids or grandkids or a wife or whatever, they're going to miss you. No one's going to care. Hmm. We, you get relegated to history. You're just a thing that used to be. No one cares. So it's just like you might as well put out whatever you can when you're thinking it or when you're experiencing it and just let it go. Because who cares, man, at the end? Who cares? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think um, it's tough though, because I maybe I'm having the opposite effect. And I guess what I would say is like, if thinking that way makes you do stuff, then that's awesome. Uh -huh. Like like a pot. Like 
I don't know. You know how many times like I think like, man, a podcast would be so cool, be fun, but you don't do it, and then it's like, oh, you're doing it. It's like that's very admirable, and like, thank you. I really also especially like your approach to it and the content you're doing because it's so genuine and it's so, um, you know, like hearing these stories, Farg Dog's talking about, and it's like, man, these are people I wish I could hang out with right now. You know, I wish I was at my parents' house and they were over at Aunt Kathy's house. Mm-hmm. I could just go over there. Yeah. And you can't. So that type of content to me it's has its stock has skyrocketed mm-hmm. over the last year. Mm-hmm. So yes, people need to create more stuff and put it out there because mm-hmm. it's like I don't know. Like this the recordings on my band camp, we recorded them and we took it pretty serious and we played a lot of shows in town and we did some tours, but we never knew how to like try to get our stuff out there. And that's maybe one of the only regrets I have in my life. Well, and that's the other thing is like not wanting to have any regrets. Uh, I, I'm reading a book right now by um, Trevor Noah, you know, uh-huh. uh, from The Daily Show. Yeah. He's got a really incredible story. He grew up in South Africa and it, it discusses um, apartheid and uh, white neighborhoods, colored neighborhoods and black neighborhoods and his interaction with all of them because he – is a colored kid. You uh-huh. know, his his mom, I believe his mom was black and his dad was white. So he never really fit in anywhere. But he has this incredible passage. It's it's the title of a chapter and it just talks about regret. And he says regret you can you can quantify uh, failure, you can quantify rejection. You can't quantify regret because regret is the thing that you don't know what would have happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's the lottery ticket you didn't buy. It's the girl you didn't ask out. It's the the party you didn't go to. It's the job interview that you were scared of. Like, who cares? Yeah. Like, just do it, man. I, I've recently, um, in the last couple of years, I heard something where it was like, pretend – that you're not living your life, but you're observing your life after you're died. That's cool. And then do what you want. I don't know. It's something about like I, I had a thing with my cousin, the same guy that I uh, almost did that shit prank with. And we kind of didn't like each other. And um, I saw him a couple years ago in Portland. He had moved back to town. He's really down on the dumps. And I thought like this might be the last time I'm ever going to see this guy. So I was like, you know, I've always hated you, right? <laughs> and he was like, well, I don't blame you. I made it myself a pretty easy target. And then we had like a real, like real heart to heart. Yeah. And I learned so much about him, about why he was such kind of a a type of person that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And I I love the guy now. And mm-hmm. I have it's just like it was so necessary. And if I wouldn't have thought about that thing, like maybe I'll never see him again. What do I actually want to say to him? Yeah. It, it never would have happened. Yeah. There's this really awesome podcast that I listened to and uh, the guest was Jesse Itzler. And he said – he started to reevaluate the way that he looked at his life. And he looked at it like his parents were super old and they were about to die. And they were they were going to die in five years or whatever. And so he, 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 he took that age gap – or that amount of, of time as normal people would view it in 
my parents are going to die in five years. And he viewed it as, I'm going to see them maybe once a year. So I get to see my parents five more times. Damn. And then they're going to be dead. And I don't think a lot of people view things that way. You don't know the last time you're going to see somebody. But if you try to pretend that maybe it's the last time, maybe you'll act differently. And the next time you see your parents, you're like, you know, my parents are in their their late 50s, early 60s. Maybe I see my parents 20 more times and then they're dead. Instead of viewing that as they have 20 more years. It's just the amount. Of- it's the amount of times I get to see them. And so that changes the way that I interact with them. So do you think, though, that might put more pressure on you? Maybe. I don't know. That's what's tough with me is my dad's had a lot of health issues over the last, I don't know, I guess 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And he's beat cancer a lot. And now I'm really nervous with COVID because of his uh, kind of compromised state. I'm afraid to see him. Mm -hmm. But then also I think – because I don't want to – I don't want to like kill him. Yeah, I don't want to sure. give him COVID. Yeah, but then I also don't want to not see him. But also, I don't talk to him about that stuff, and yeah. it's it's weird because I don't want to. Maybe I'm afraid to bring it up because it seems too serious. But yeah, it's real, man. It, it's a. I go and see my grandma every single summer since I was born. So 36 years I've gone to see my grandma. Where's that at? It's in Lakeview, California. Okay. Uh, six hours from here. Just it's right where California meets uh, Oregon. Like that's in California, though. She lives in California, like a hundred feet or a hundred yards into California. You know, um, it's called New Pine Creek. Heart Mountains, right by Lakeview. Uh, she probably knows what that is. You should go check it out next time. Go to the Hot Springs. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> nice. Well, she she lives down there. And she's got a simple life. You know, she sees us once a summer and we've gone down there for Christmas a few times, but like, that's the big trip. I take my kids down there. I used to take my wife when I was married. Like that's, that's a big thing. Last summer I couldn't do it. And she, she has an iPad and she texts me and she's like, I would rather have you come here and see me and die than be lonely and not see you for a year. And I'm like, that is insane, man. Like, that's what people are dealing with right now. Like what you're talking about is like making the decision whether or not to see someone because you're worried about infecting them and they're dying themselves because they're so starved of attention. Yeah. It's a crazy time. Yeah. Definitely. (laughs) I don't know. And it's like the compromise would be you go and you social distance and wear masks, but I can't. When I go, I visited my parents over Christmas and I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Do they still live out there? Yeah, they live, you know, now they're Ron's neighbor instead of Kathy's neighbor. But Oh, yeah, because he lives there now. Yeah. yeah. So do you actually live in Eugene? Mm Mm-hmm. I live in Eugene. I love Eugene. It's fun. Happy to- Did you drive all the way up here? Yeah. Thank you. I didn't know that, man. <laughs> you don't even know how – what was hilarious was uh, driving up and I'm just loving the drive. I mean, granted, it's a beautiful day out, right? And like the clouds are clearing and the sky is so blue and there's the mountains, there's the valley. And then on NPR, they're talking about how people now are 
just going on drives in the morning trying to find traffic jams because they miss it. Yeah. And I hate that drive from Eugene to Portland. And I just – I had a blast just doing it. Cool. I didn't didn't know that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I I don't know. I want to support – I like what you're doing and I've had a lot of fun listening to your podcast. So hopefully people will like listening to this one. Yeah. And I want to say one last thing. I think we've got to be pretty close to being Yeah, we can can wrap it up. Well, I mean I could talk for hours, but I think – I'll come back for another Yeah, one. I think you should come back. Um, so I wanted to plug again that I released my Reptilian Civilian Greatest Hits Volume 1. And I wanted to say uh, one of the songs on it is called Beat Up Your Baby. And it's based on Farg Dog, our mutual <laughs> friend. So I wanted to tell this story because it's funny. When uh, he was like two or something, uh, his brother Shane and Ron were just – I mean, those guys were relentless on Cody. They just beat him up nonstop. <laughs> and I mean, right, Shane was national champion wrestler. Mm-hmm. Cody was something like that, too. Ron was a big dude. And it was just like nonstop beating up Cody. And I guess the story goes, they would tell him, like, you couldn't beat up anybody. You can never beat up anybody. We could beat you up. And he was really upset and sad. And one of Kathy's friends came over, and she had a little baby. And Cody was so excited because he went up to the lady and he, he thought she was going to be so proud. And he said, I could beat up your baby. I could beat up your baby. <laughs> so I wrote, and the song is not about that at all, but that, just that line, I guess, that turned into a lyric for a song. You uh, remember that or somebody told you? I mean, I this was even, I think, before I knew Cody, because I met him when I was four. Yeah. But that's one of, you know, Kathy loves to tell stories to me. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, just like Shane and... Uh, Ron like to beat him up physically. I think everybody likes to beat him up emotionally a little bit. <laughs> like my cousin, he makes himself a target. So yeah, yeah. What can you do? Mm-hmm. I mean, he did wear a dashiki for years, apparently. Yeah. Which I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fire dog, you got to love him. Yeah, totally. He's got a heart almost as big as he is. Yeah, he does. He's a good guy. Definitely. Love you, Fire dog. Yeah, Fark Dog. Yeah, you know, he he talked you up a lot. I was almost apprehensive to do the podcast, so he he pushed me over the edge. I'm glad you came up. He he was a very strong proponent of you. He he told me for years, he's like, yeah, you know, uh, Skyler could read the newspaper when he was three years old. <laughs> he used to say, I could read, I'm so smart, I could re- spell Oshkosh Bagosh. And... I mean, I appreciate the sentiment, but I'm a horrible speller, so I don't think I could spell <laughs> Oshkosh Bagosh. You could read there. the newspaper at three, but you couldn't spell. I'm a horrible speller. But now you have, um, you know, spell check, so it's fine. Yeah, but don't. I don't like this. Uh, the application I was trying to fill out to move into this new house with my girlfriend, it's like I misspelled Collie. Like, I don't know how, you know, like if it doesn't have a red squiggly line underneath it, like, mm-hmm. I don't know how. I'm probably dyslexic or something. English is hard. It's so hard. It's it's very, very ridiculous. Yeah, there's no rules. And they say there's rules, right? You're I before E, except after C, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. If you look at the spelling of my name, Skyler, S-C-H-Y-L-E-R, that mm-hmm. makes no sense. Then Reese is R-E-I-S. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. I was well, damned. Well, yeah, What what is that? Uh, Reese, I think. So that's for my dad's dad. And if you look it up on genealogy.com, it could mean – it means rice in German. It could mean someone that 
lived in like a scrubby area in Germany, or it could be the German last name for a Jewish cobbler. And that's what my great, great, great grandpa was. So interesting. He, uh, I'll tell you the story about him some other time, but cool. So that's what it is. I'm glad you came up, dude. I appreciate it. Well, thanks. I had a blast. Mm -hmm. Anybody, I recommend you guys come, you know, sign out, drink beers. Yeah, you got to bring a six pack, though. That's Mm -hmm. the rule, apparently. (laughs) Apparently, now. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right, man. Well, thanks. Yep. Oh, now let's pretend we're listening to that song I told you about, right? (laughs) Isn't that how you, if you're. I don't think anybody makes this this long anyway.